Hi, welcome back to On Air, the LTN podcast, coming to you from the heart of the Bose LTN in Enfield. I'm John Machin. My guest thinks road pricing is on its way and might be part of the solution to traffic congestion. But if road user charging is imposed upon people, it will not work, it will not be fair. The people who could be badly hit are carers going to visit their clients, small businesses who need their vans. We've got to almost subvert the usual process. That would be almost an anathema to some of the traditional environmental groups. Is it really only 21 months since the Bose LTN was first imposed, and with it 71 others in London and even more across the UK? It feels like years on end. My guest, John Stewart, has been a veteran campaigner on transport issues for over 30 years. And I think it's significant that someone with this long perspective is quite categorical when it comes to low-traffic neighbourhoods. His verdict, they're ineffective and inherently unfair. They penalise people living on main and boundary roads, don't reduce chronic congestion on key roads, and are too divisive to form the basis for the transformational policies to tackle traffic that we need. Perhaps the biggest question I want to find answers to in this podcast is, what are those transformational policies? If not LTNs, what? Road pricing has been around as a serious idea since at least 1964, but so far nationwide road pricing, or road user charging as it's also known, has not been implemented. Of course, in London, we have some road charging already. The Central London Congestion Charge introduced in 2003 under Ken Livingston, which is a flat charge but with exemptions for residents and disability. It had a Western extension introduced in 2007, but scrapped on Christmas Eve 2010 by one Boris Johnson after a consultation showed residents didn't want it. The low emission zone of 2008, which applied charges to commercial vehicles with less clean engines, and of course the ultra-low emission zone, or ULEZ, introduced in 2019 by Sadiq Khan which, as we know, applies a charge to all motor vehicles that don't meet the emission standards set out in the scheme, and which he wants to extend to the whole of Greater London next year. I really need to do an edition on the ULEZ soon. Has it worked? Or is it just a TfL money grab? But enough from me. Let's hear what my guest thinks. John Stewart, welcome to On Air, the LTN podcast. I think it's fair to say you've been campaigning on transport issues for a lot longer than I have. You're chair of the Campaign for Better Transport and also of the UK Noise Association. You you have campaigned against airport expansion a lot in the past. Uh, I was looking you up, of course I was. The Guardian said this about you in 2009. Thanks to John Stewart, more than 20 local authorities representing 4 million people, six unions, the National Trust, Greenpeace, Friends of the Earth, WWF, 50 rebel Labour MPs and all the opposition political parties are now opposed to Heathrow expansion. That sounds pretty um, influential. I know things went awry after that. Isn't that always the way? They did a bit, John, but the third runway still hasn't been built, though that's partly to do with COVID and Heathrow running out of money and uh, and so on and so forth. But yes, it, it's true. I was involved with the campaign against the third runway for many, many years. And Green Group's seem pretty much committed still to the most recent initiative that claims to favour the environment, low traffic neighbourhoods. But you're not, is the quote from your blog. 
Low traffic neighbourhoods are deeply unjust. They create pleasant streets for people living on side roads by pushing a lot of the traffic onto boundary roads and the already heavily trafficked adjacent main roads. But after the local election results, perhaps we could say this message is not getting through. Could we say that? I'm not sure. I think it's probably too early to to read the election results. Certainly there was a number of parties that support local traffic neighbourhoods were voted back in or won their local elections. But there was also in some boroughs a swing against parties which supported low traffic neighbourhoods. And I think the other thing to think about, John, in the local elections is that the turnout can be very, very low and the people who are perhaps least likely to vote are the people on lower incomes, perhaps people who are recently arrived in this country. And in my view, those are the people who are most likely to be adversely affected by low traffic neighbourhoods because they are most likely to live on main roads. So I think it's it was probably a mixed picture Uh, the local elections as far as low traffic neighbourhoods were concerned. I think that's absolutely right. I can say from my own experience, I campaigned and leafleted right along the stretch of the North Circular Road that's affected by the low traffic neighbourhood that I live in, Bowes in Enfield. I must have dropped leaflets in 500 houses minimum and I got one response, you know. Uh, There's a lot of multi-occupancy houses along there quite clearly they're way more affected by traffic than any of the side roads in the area where people were campaigning for the LTN and yet they perhaps don't see it as an issue or they have lives to get on with I don't know which I mean I think they have lives to get on with I think they as I said just now are probably less likely to vote certainly in local elections although many more will vote in in a general election sure certainly People who are pro-LTN don't seem to have changed their tune at all. You reproduced an interesting tweet on your blog post, which was actually retweeted by the Warwick Road Action Group, which is our local pro-LTN group here, which said, the conclusion is, the more LTNs, planters, bollards and cycle lanes you put, the more communities get used to them and question why they put up with car-dominated streets for so long. No one will want to go back to the way things were, except a few die-hard motorists. There's no hint there, is there, of any understanding of the wider effects of LTNs, of what people, you know, only a few hundred metres away, who they know perfectly well exist, what those people have to pay in order for the fortunate LTN dwellers to have their nirvana. You know, the message just seems to be, we can all have this. There's no downside. The cars will just evaporate but they won't, will they? No, I think I think that's right. I think it's uh, people within the LTNs and who enjoy living on those quieter, less polluted streets, They, um, if they think at all about their neighbours on the main roads and the boundary roads, they're saying, oh, well, the cars, as you say, will evaporate. Now, there is no hard evidence that that will be the case. There was a study done, there's only one real big study done by Professor Phil Goodwin and Sally Cairns uh, many years ago now. And what it found was that in certain circumstances, some traffic may evaporate. 
What it did not find was that in every situation, traffic will evaporate. And I think people who are uh, believing that the traffic will evaporate are clinging on to a, a convenient excuse that everything will be all right on the main roads. It, it simply won't be. So if LTNs are a false dawn, what are the better answers to traffic congestion and pollution? I mean, I think it's worth reminding ourselves at this point that you know pollution won't go away even if we had an electric car revolution. We would lower NO2, we would lower CO2 and some of the particulates, but tyres and brakes will still give off some. So, you know, nothing's perfect. But I was very interested to see on your blog a post about road pricing. And I'll be honest, my initial reaction to that was to think, oh, blimey, I'm I'm not in favour of road pricing. It seemed dubious. But I'm glad that you addressed the issue of, of fairness up front. How will road pricing, how could it work? I think it could work very badly. It could work very unfairly. But it could also, I think, work fairly. But it would be a huge challenge to make that happen. My view is, John, that road pricing, particularly in someone like London, may well come in because the congestion is so bad and because with the electric cars coming in, the government is going to lose all this many billions of pounds it gets through fuel duty. It's got to make that up in some way. So my view is that realistically it's going to come in. And and the challenge for all of us is to ensure that even when it does come in, it comes in in as fair a way as possible. Because potentially the people who could be badly hit are those who rely on their cars, carers going to visit their clients, small businesses who need their vans, and people who simply will struggle to to pay the charge. It seems to me that the critical thing is that if road pricing does come in, and I'm calling it road user charging really, because I think you pay according to how far you travel. I think that's the fairer way. But if road pricing or road user charging comes in, I think the critical one of the critical things is that a fair proportion of the money is used to ensure there's better public transport and critically much lower fares on public transport. So people have a real choice and that they can get, most people can get around and about and travel on cheap public transport and in fact their travel costs could be lower than it is today. I would also say there should be money going into safe walking and cycling because I think we all want safe walking and cycling and that will encourage people uh, to walk and to cycle. But the critical thing to me is that part of the revenue raised from road pricing goes into make public transport a lot cheaper than it is right now. Yes, we're often told that public transport in London is absolutely brilliant but it still could be a lot better couldn't it it's expensive a lot of people don't necessarily feel that it's safe especially at night it could still do with an awful lot of investment and how much bigger a problem will this be in the rest of the country especially in more rural areas where you know public transport is so much worse i think it could be a much bigger problem there john because london at least has got a transport network as you say it can be a little bit unsafe it's certainly far too expensive but the network is there even if you go to some of the towns and cities far less the rural areas outside london that coherent network of buses and trains and trams is just not there 
and it would need to be in place if road pricing was to work because people need uh, if they're going to have to pay money to travel in their car and they don't want to pay it they need a real alternative an alternative where all modes of transport connect with each other where they run safely and efficiently and cheaply and in most towns and cities outside London that doesn't exist I think in rural areas it would be even more difficult. I think this question of when people have to drive for their livelihood is quite important, isn't it? Because just a second ago, we were sort of agreeing that the local election results hadn't really shown, or we couldn't discern at any rate, that the anti-LTN campaign had really sort of cut through with the voters. But it struck me that there was one big exception to that, and that was Tower Hamlets, where a massive Labour majority was overturned by the Aspire Party. And they also took the mayoralty as well, I think. And I know because on an earlier edition of this podcast, I spoke to a Labour councillor from Tower Hamlets that uh, the LTN was a massive issue there, not least in a by-election not that long ago, which Aspire won. So they very much campaigned, I think, on behalf of working people who have to drive, people who have caring responsibilities, couriers, taxi drivers. They were vastly against the LTNs, which I think were introduced in a really terrible way in that area. And look what's happened. Aspire have kicked Labour out of Tower Hamlets. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. LTNs were a huge issue and Aspire came out very, very strongly against them for exactly the reasons that uh, you described, John, that so many people living in the area, low-income people, were dependent on their cars uh, for their livelihoods and to get about. They, They didn't really have the choice. And I think if somebody like me who thinks that road pricing is probably inevitable, I need to face up to that. And my view would be that the people who are the potential losers, the people that you've just described in Tower Hamlets, they should be the people who from the very early possible stage should be invited to help design a a road user charging scheme. It's so often that these things come from on top, they're imposed. That's really what's happened with the low traffic neighbourhoods. Somebody else, often a pressure group, an environmental pressure group has dreamt something up and they try to impose it upon others. If road user charging is imposed upon people and imposed upon people uh, that you've just described in Tower Hamlets, it will not work, it will not be fair. It seems to me that we've got to almost subvert the usual process. Now, that would be almost an anathema to some of the traditional environmental groups who feel that that's their role. They perhaps have a role in this, but but the key role for me is that their road user charging scheme is designed by local people, by ordinary users of public transport, and critically by people who need their cars to get about. Two more topics I wanted to cover and they're related, parking and working from home. I was really interested to see your short blog post about parking and how that can help us achieve lower traffic levels. 
again, it's one of those subjects which people who drive, people who feel they don't have much alternative to drive, get nervous about. We all know what it's like not to be able to find parking somewhere. But how how will control of parking, how could that help? First of all, I think people are rightly nervous about controlling of parking, particularly if they need their cars, particularly if they want to uh, need to park, say, outside the, the small business they may have on a main road. What I would say about parking is that I, I think reducing parking does, perhaps fairly obviously, reduce traffic levels. But it's not abolishing parking everywhere. I think one's going to be very, very sensitive to where the parking spaces go. Uh, I mean, what, what's interesting is there's a scheme called workplace charging. Uh, I think it's workplace parking charging, it's called, which has been introduced in Nottingham. And this is really where you have big employers, like Boots, for example, in Nottingham. And they provided a lot of car parking spaces for their employees to come in in the morning. And what's happening there is that Boots have been charged according to the number of car parking spaces they provide. They probably pass that charge on to their employees. But in return, I believe the employees are being given financial incentives to use public transport. So it seems to me that's a realistic and sensible way of dealing with parking. What I don't think is sensible is just to get rid of all parking on all high streets, some of which is really very essential for the people who live and work there. Which brings us on to working from home. I'm broadly of the view that we might be missing a one-off opportunity to cancel a lot of useless commuting by trying to make people go back to the way they worked before the pandemic. And that to me, that seems to be what the Prime Minister is trying to do. And I think this is crazy. It's not just about cars after all. That's the most obvious way in which we can get rid of useless commuting. But let's face it, the transport systems are under a lot of pressure as well. And so it's commuting by bus and especially by train and and tube, especially in, in, in London. The pressure could be taken off all of that by working from home. Yet, I guess TfL are looking at the cost of that in terms of lost fare revenues. I'd be interested to hear your views on that. Yes, I think they are. They're looking. At, they're looking at the bottom line. And if you tr- travel in at the what used to be the rush hour uh, on on tube, it's it's obviously busier than it was during COVID. But it's nothing like it was pre-COVID. For the person travelling, for the passenger, it's really quite comfortable. But of course, with TfL, it's it's a loss maker. But I think you're right. I think this is an opportunity for us to look again at our transport systems. They've been very focused, perhaps of necessity, particularly in London, the rail and tube systems, a little bit less the bus systems, on the commuter hours, the couple of hours in the morning, the two or three hours in the evening. If commuters are not going to be using it in the same way as they did before, I think the challenge, but it's also an opportunity for TfL and the rail companies to look again at what sort of services they provide, when they provide them and where they provide them. Because while the commuters, if there's more working from home, may not come into the centre of the city every morning, they may be in effect travelling more in their local area. It's not an easy challenge, but it is a, it is a challenge 
for the rail and tube operators, the light rail uh, as well, and to some extent the buses, although they've always been less focused on the rush hour, uh, to look at the new ways in which people are travelling and to seize those opportunities, to seize those opportunities for the companies. And that's why I say that it's a challenge, but it's also an opportunity, and it could be a win-win situation, because if the transport systems are less focused around the rush hour, that on the whole would be good, and it also would be good for people who do need to travel during the rush hour, because it's going to be less crowded. John Stewart, thank you very much. Thank you, John. That's about it for another edition. I'm sorry it's taken me so long to get new editions out. That's partly down to the pesky old full-time job and partly down to people not wanting to come on. I had an edition all lined up featuring the Mums for Lungs campaign group who had very interesting things to say about things like wood-burning stoves, which you see in all the trendy house transformation TV shows and which can cause a lot of particulate pollution. But in the end, Mums for Lungs withdrew because they felt that appearing on a podcast about LTNs would drag them into the mire. And you know, I understand that. The debate is pretty toxic a lot of the time. They were already getting a lot of anger directed at them about LTNs, despite the fact that they don't campaign on the issue one way or another. I've got an... Anyway, you can find out more about them at mumsforlungs.org and John Stewart's very interesting blog is at johnstewartliveblog.com .wordpress.com or one word John Stewart live blog .wordpress.com edition about Harrow's LTN experience in the pipeline they had four LTNs in 2020 and now they've got none after residents said no so fingers crossed anyway please let me know what you think via on air LTN podcast that's all one word at gmail.com on air LTN podcast at gmail.com and tell me what issues you think should appear on the podcast or who and that could be you if you feel strongly either pro or anti or somewhere in between be clear this podcast is not anti-ltn it's ltn skeptic and there's an important difference i feel the way i do about ltns because of what i've experienced living in one and what i've found out about them i have asthma and copd so this is personal as well as political my mind can be changed by new evidence and opinions not much point in having a mind otherwise really and the podcast is the way it is because of the people who've agreed to come on so feel free to drop me a line at onairltnpodcast at gmail.com thank you to everyone who already has bye for now bye for now